Hello and welcome to the pilot episode of WMQNA, the official podcast of WMQ Comics. Uh, I'm your host, Dan Grote, and joining me on this maiden voyage are uh, my two best friends, two guys who know comics probably more than me, uh, Rob Lynch and Matt Lazowitz. How are you guys doing? Doing good. No, glad to be here. All right. Uh, so we're kind of feeling our oats with this podcast, figuring out what we want to do show to show, but I thought for the first episode, uh, we'd focus on some of the news of the day in the comics industry. Earlier this week, actually right in the middle of the Super Bowl, uh, DC announced it was launching two new graphic novel imprints aimed at young adult and middle grade readers, uh, DC Inc. and DC Zoom. Uh, now, Matt, you've worked in a comic shop for, for years and years, uh, you know, and all ages books were kind of one of your wheelhouses. You know, obviously parents come in with kids, you know, they want to read a comic you know, what are you going to show them? Uh, can you talk a little bit about what this means and why and whether it's a smart move on DC's part? I think this is a great move for DC. I mean, the number of all-ages books from the big two have been decreasing steadily over the years. Um, I mean, there was a period in the early aughts where Marvel had a solid line of Mar- the Marvel Adventures line, which was a great line. If you look at it, the creators that were working on them, the writers were all, you got your uh, solid B-list, sometimes A-list. I mean, you had Jeff Parker, Peter David, Paul Tobin. Chris Somney drew a Thor book, right? Yes, he, oh, Roger Langridge, Langridge, sorry, wrote that. I love his stuff. Uh, the Thor the Mighty Avenger. Yeah. And it was a great book. And DC had the whole line of adventures books tying into other animated series, plus, uh, I mean, the whole Hanna-Barbera line, Looney Tunes, things like that. And those have disappeared. Marvel has no all-ages line, hasn't in a long time. Star. Star. In the late 80s, yeah. Oh, that was, a, yeah. That was a good time, good time. And DC's all-ages output at this point has been Looney Tunes, which I think at this point is bi-monthly Scooby-Doo Scooby-Doo Team-Up and Teen Titans Go Mm -hmm. and that's it and there are certain books from that are in their superhero lines that would be considered YA Um, Ms. Marvel and Unbeatable Squirrel Girl from Marvel and Super Sons-ish from DC, the Terrifics is apparently is being marketed as uh, all ages. That hasn't come out yet, but yeah. But it's so and but DC. I mean, DC has been doing the uh, superhero girls OGNs, yeah, which, which do very well. They do very well. And I mean, I'm really outside the target audience on that one, <laughs> but I picked one up just to, have, and it was it was a fun book. And I'm actually the new one that just came out, I believe, last week, where Batgirl finds Jim Gordon out on a date. I am kind of curious to see exactly what's going on there. Um, But now expanding that into something that is more of a line and more of an initiative from DC is smart. It's, I mean, most comic shops have that all ages, younger readers section. And at this point, a lot of what we as retailers sell from there are the stuff currently in floppies coming from boom mm-hmm. um a lot of the cartoon network books and depending on how liberal-minded the comic shop is your boom box titles and that's like lumberjanes lumberjanes mm-hmm. uh giant days backstagers things that are really kind of geared much more to a teen ya 
mm-hmm. than an than a younger younger readers group, and your sort of seminal classics, your Bone, your Amelia Rules, the stuff that comes out from Scholastic. So DC coming out saying, "Hey, we're doing this," is I think real smart. I mean, I'm, they, it looks like the creators they have involved, the few that have been announced, are pretty solid. I think Jing Wen Yang writing... Superman uh, smashes the clan. Is great. <laughs> I mean, there and there is all the history there of the Superman radio show, you know, doing storylines about, you know, Superman fighting back then a, a very thinly veiled clan analog. Uh, a clan analog, if you will. Indeed. Uh, and, I mean, I was looking at some of those titles. It's interesting. DC has been doing a series of YA novels featuring their heroes as late teens. And I just finished the Batman novel in that series, Nightwalkers, and that's one of the first books that's going to be adapted into one of these graphic novels. They also have a digital first series, Mystic U, which is basically Zatanna goes to magic college. Yes, yes, (laughs) I'm trade-waiting that one because they've come out in, they're releasing it in Prestige, Mm -hmm. uh, three-issue Prestige before they trade it. And I'm Mm kind of, only so many hours and so many comics one can get, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, and Marvel also just announced in the most re- their most recent round of solicits mm-hmm. that they are adding the Marvel Rising imprint, which looks to be YA, and a book that I wish I had remembered the name of, but I believe it was Marvel Superheroes, that is dubbed All Ages. And there is the Lockjaw miniseries that I've got to imagine is a YA series. I don't <laughs> think you can do a series that focuses on Lockjaw that isn't at least somewhat accessible well uh that one's being written by daniel kibblesmith who's also doing quantum and woody for valiant so we'll see it'll be funny i just you know <laughs> work on maybe on a couple different levels yeah <laughs> now you know coming to this whole topic I, I sort of have an interesting perspective on this because when i was eight it was a much different time for comics my exposure initially was the spinner rack at the 7-eleven the spinner rack at the local you know, bookshop in the mall. The one with the sign at the top says, hey, kids, comics. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you compare 1986 with now, and this is kind of a question to you. I mean, you would think that parents, it's really on parents to be more proactive in actually getting their kids into comics, into, like, recreational reading at all. I mean, as somebody who's, you know, been on that, that side of the counter, I mean, do you see that as kind of a challenge, or? It can be. I think it has been one of the things I don't see big screen movies bringing in a lot of older audiences but I do see kids see these characters even if they don't see the movies mm-hmm. in commercials in the cartoons and that gets them interested that's a great point because I'll tell you what what got me into the X-Men wasn't the comics that I was buying. It was actually um, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Oh. We had, you know, the Danger Room episode. Mm-hmm. And and from that, I picked up, uh, at the time, they did Classic X-Men. Which was, you know, the, it was the reprints with, you know, the Claremont and uh, Bolton backup mm-hmm. and everything in it. And that was one of the first, I think it was issue 10, was one of the first things I ever bought. And it was based on these cool characters I saw in the cartoon. Yeah. So that does make sense. So you went into... Reading X Men, waiting for Thunderbird to a be alive and b turn into a bear. <laughs> Pretty much, <laughs> an Australian Wolverine. Yeah, Australian Wolverine. Yeah, I mean, the number of people of our age, or maybe and some maybe a little younger, whose gateway 
to comics was Batman the Animated Series and X-Men the Animated Series is a big segment. It's why those early appearances of Harley Quinn are the damned hardest comics to find. It's why I have all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but that, to have a, an entry point is really important. And it's gotten harder when there isn't a Spider-Man book, when somebody comes in with their eight or even ten-year-old and be like, yeah, this isn't going to have 200 issues of Dan Slott's continuity behind it, let alone the 500 issues before that. Mm -hmm. of the past. <laughs> but it's something that is an entry point book is important. And it's been something that I think a lot of companies have forgotten, that they count on their dedicated readers, or they count on people just kind of sucking it up and being like, all right, I'm going to jump in here, I'm going to figure it out, and hey, we've got these vast digital archives that you can subscribe to yeah. if you mm -hmm. want to find out what happened before. Well, you know, the super decompressed style you know, storytelling that's taken off, like really in the last, you know... 18, 19 years. But Since the trade market exploded. They're, they're aiming for that, you know, that four or five, six issue arc that they can collect in a trade. That art of writing as if this is the first book, you know, that I think Claremont, I think, was really the genius of that. How many issues would you open up and say, I am Storm, I lead the X-Men, I am a mutant, I am feared and hated by most. <laughs> I currently do not have my powers, yeah, but... Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how many issues of X-Men started with either all the X-Men in the danger room... <laughs> Or all the X-Men playing sports mm -hmm. and bantering to establish yeah. the scene. And because not every character is a Batman, a Superman, or a Spider-Man, where their origins are baked into the pop culture zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. And as they as companies want to expand not just the reader base, but the diversity of their characters, there are gonna be more characters that appeal to different audiences. And it's going to be trickier for people to know what Kamala Khan's deal is right out of the gate. What Raven's deal is right out of the gate. Heck, what Wonder Woman's deal is right out of the gate. That might be a little easier after last year's Wonder Woman movie. But still, her origin also has been kind of tweaked and, and molded like the clay she was formed from. Or not. Try doing that with Hawkman or Cable. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, uh, Guys, we, we only have like an hour. Can, can we just say, I, I, this is a bit of a tangent, but you, you said Hawkman. I'm a big fan of the way Jeff Johns dealt with Hawkman's past. It was, you know, when he brought him back, you know, people were saying to him, you know, we want Hawkman, we want Hawkman. And he's like, what? Look over there. They all look, they turn back, he's like, here, here's Hawkman. That's the only way to handle Hawkman at this point. No, no deal with an origin. It's just like, here, this is Hawkman. You want a guy with wings who carries a mace and hits people? There you go. Well, I mean, now he's a giant bird monster, so I think that's cool. Yeah, is he a Thanagarian bird monster or is he an Egyptian bird monster? Hey, look over there. <laughs> um, you know, DC is clearly, you know, it's sees the value in fostering younger readers and also expanding the market to, to keep, uh, you know, girls as part of the equation, you know, get that other 50% of the, uh, you know, population reading. Uh, it's, it's kind of a shame that not everyone in the fandom feels that way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you look at social media, 
uh, especially in the, well, it's it's really gone on longer than that, but it feels louder in the last month. Really, there's this weird, pathetic. I'm just going to go out and say it. Little clatch of agitators that have united under the hashtag of Comicsgate that feel that they are the dem- dominant demographic in comics. Uh, you know, mostly young white, white men. And they are owed everything by comics creators and the journalists who cover them. Uh, you know, this week, this past week, they released an enemies list, a, a, a burn book for those of you who've watched Mean Girls, uh, that they're calling the Comics Mafia. Which, first of all, great name. But <laughs> listen to some of the people who are on this list: uh, Matt Nat Fraction, who wrote The Greatest Hawkeye and Sex Criminals. Um, you know, Kurt Busiek, one of the great Avengers writers. Um, you know, Mark Wade, sort of the superhero writer, superhero writer, um, Larry Hama. Guys, he's a veteran, like a, a literal veteran. A real American hero. Yes. Absolutely. Who invented most, if not all, of G.I. Joe. You know, very soft-spoken, polite, you know, nice man to meet. Yeah. And and not to mention that, I, and, and really, I kind of started this list off with, with, with three older white men, but, you know, there's a lot of, of LGBT creators in this list, a lot of women, uh, you know, a, a lot of people of color. What the hell's going on with these kids? You know what the problem with these kids are? Nobody ever taught them to share the damn ball on the playground when they were little. <laughs> to keep, you know... You... <laughs> Treat others as... I don't even want to... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, first, I don't, you can't tell in podcasts that I tried to make my eye roll loud <laughs> enough that you could hear it. But I, not even I can do that. Um, first, I want to thank these guys. Because now, on a light week, when I don't you know, meet my comics quota, I have a list of creators that I can go and seek out their work. Because mm-hmm. I want to support anybody who is... You know, being targeted by people like this. Yeah, yes. that list that Dan just read, if you're somebody who's looking to get into comics, there's your hit list right there. Yeah, go go give Magdalene Visaggio all of your money. Check out Cena Grace's Iceman. If you're one of the people who's pre-ordered their tickets to Black Panther already, check out Tennessee Coates' Black Panther. You want to talk about getting girls into comics, you know, if, if you're, you know, a parent and you want to get your daughter into something, Jamal Igles, uh Molly, Molly Dangerous. Molly Dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing that drives me absolutely up the wall about this particular mindset is that somewhere along the way, these people turned fandom, which when I was coming up in the world, when I was a young, you know, teens, 20-something white guy and we should probably be we are all cis white guys here so our privilege is well checked yes i hope (laughs) yeah Um, (laughs) that fandom was about inclusion fandom was about the rest of the world doesn't get me but when i go into the comic shop even if i'm a dc and he's a marvel or i think the Hulk is stronger than the Thing, and he thinks the Thing is stronger than the Hulk. We could have those discussions and come out laughing and come in, come out friends. And if, you know, if somebody came in who was new, you welcomed them because it was a brotherhood. Occasionally, a brother sisterhood, but back then it was a lot more a family. 
Yes. Yes. You were a family. <laughs> let's let's fast and furious this. <laughs> yes, that, that, that share of love. You know, you do speak that same esoteric language that you know. Right. And now, with the mainstream, partially the mainstreaming of fandom and geek culture, but at the same time, it's just that there are people who don't like change, and this is a sea change in fan culture. For a sea change that has been in effect for at least five years now. At least. More than that. Yeah. 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 I, but it's just... you. It's like, well, I don't... I think part of it is that people who have this particular mindset now don't feel included anymore. And not because the new, the quote-unquote new fan is excluding them but because the new fan doesn't have the same interests or the same priorities that they do. And so now they feel excluded again. I, I compared it to kind of, uh, we were talking about the killing joke once and I, I compared it to do the right thing. And, you know, when, when Mookie tells Danny Aiello uh, or no, Joe Montana, I don't remember who an older Italian actor John Turturro <laughs> yeah. but, it, yeah, but he says you know F Frank Sinatra and F your F and pizza it's it's like that with comics but instead of Frank Sinatra it's Alan Moore <laughs> yeah yeah oh that was Gus Spring actually who said that <laughs> I, but it's just I want to feel like and I, I come from I worked in a comic shop where the owner firmly believed that everyone who comes into that store should be welcomed, literally, in that when somebody comes in, it's like, hi, how you doing? But they should also feel welcome in the store, whether it's an old white guy, a middle-aged person of color, or a young woman of any race, class, creed, etc. You should be willing to just say, hey, welcome, what are you looking for? And you should be able to help them find something because there's a comic for everybody. Even for people who say, I would never read a comic, there's a comic that they would like. I, I would say that, you know, this industry really needs to grow, to survive. I mean, they're not just, you know, because it's the death of print and, you know... There are so many other forms of entertainment now that take up, you know, you've got your Netflix and you've got your social media and you've got your video games, you've got eating Tide Pods or whatever you have. And, you know, <laughs> recreational reading, I mean, especially in comics, I don't want to, you know, say that it's a dying form, but it's... It, as a medium, there's so much sort of working against it economically. It's, it's not... There's a passivity to consuming television you sit on your couch and you're you're just you know you surf until you find something to watch either on cable or on streaming and you know you pay your bill once a month and you don't think about it you're not actively selecting shows a la carte you know with comics you're going into a store and every every week or however often you go and plunking down money piecemeal for each specific book and i think the the i'm probably going a little all over the place with this 
the idea of blaming a cabal of freelance writers who basically only have health care because of the Affordable Care Act for conspiring to ruin comics ignores decades of, you know, the decline of a medium due to the insularity of the direct market, um, the speculator boot, but, you know, bust in the 90s, Marvel's sort of bankruptcy. You know, it's it's not... It's not because Kurt Busick once said something you didn't agree with online. And there, so there's... Because you've got more simple. I mean, these are people that are just trying to bring joy and entertainment into people's lives. I mean, you could say, you know, it's like throwing spaghetti at the wall and what's going to stick. I mean, some of these books, when you talk about diversity, work fantastically. Some may not catch on. But there's nothing insidious about it. No. You know, I mean, I think it is a normal, healthy need for people to see themselves reflected in art i mean that that just works on a human emotional level yeah it's, it's that's why bingo love was the most beautiful thing that i read yeah. this past week it, it's not some like insidious hashtag and i think what you really see especially on the social media is you know a lot of these you, you think that they're sensible grown adults that get stuck on these buzzwords that they probably completely don't know what they mean and just use them like weapons. And you can go down a whole checklist of words that we just never need to hear again. SJW, butthurt, snowflake. When did social justice become a swear? When did the idea that everyone deserves basic human dignity become a bad thing? Apparently in the last couple of years, it sure as hell didn't happen back in the early 70s when Denny O'Neill actually called out Hal Jordan on, you know, being the champion of the blue people and the purple people, but what has he done for the brown people? And anyone who's like, oh, well, you know, you're changing all my heroes. Granted, this wasn't, you know, race bending or anything, but could you imagine the internet in the late 50s? Oh, the Flash. I remember when he was running around with a helmet. Now we got this guy in a red union suit. Green Lantern, vulnerable to yellow. I remember when it was wood that was his weakness. You would have had McCarthyism on a more private level, too, rather mm. than just in, you know, a Senate hearing. You would have it, you know. Yeah, I mean, what... what now, maybe this... To, I, I, again, the toxicity is amplified by social media. But, you know... And maybe I wasn't reading Wizard Magazine that closely in the 90s, but were these people getting that bent out of shape about, like, Rhodey taking over for Tony Stark in the Iron Man costume in the late 80s, you know? I would be curious, because I think it would have to be something we'd have to look in fanzines for. Yeah. Because I doubt Marvel would have printed a letter with somebody dropping N-bombs who was angry that Rhodey was... Uh, Iron Man now. I, while I'm sure they got those letters, the, the closest thing I can think of, and again, this wasn't a race thing. This wasn't this level of toxicity. Mm -hmm. But there was that whole weird cabal of fans who wrote letters, and I believe they showed up at Comic-Cons when Hal Jordan stopped being Green Lantern and Kyle Rayner took over. They called. They had a little name, they called Heat Hal's Emerald Attack Team, and they, they wrote to Wizard, they wrote to DC, they made this huge stink. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't... Because this, he was Portuguese? No, it, was, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a race thing. It was just a, ooh, we don't like this. And so it's always happened, but now it's taken on 
this additional level of real nastiness because it's not just you're ruining my childhood it's you're ruining my childhood and stripping away my innate privilege because you want other people to feel like they have a voice and representation in this industry because there's a second hawkeye who's a girl <laughs> you know if you take you know the entirety of comics history as it you know pertains to you know straight white men and turn it into a pie chart you're going to have a pac-man with pursed lips and it's really this tiny yeah. little sliver that has them up in arms. It's absurd. Just on a mathematical level, it's it's absurd. And I would love to see some of these people, when they realize that their favorite characters, guess what? They were all created by Jews. <laughs> Superman. Batman. Cap. Cap. The every almost Mark. every single Funko Pop I'm looking at in the wall behind me. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> Black Panther. <laughs> yeah, they were. That comics has always been a voice for the voiceless because, I mean, granted, you know, anti-Semitism is on the rise now. But when these characters were created, it was a hard road for a Jew. There were uh, the, uh, a a uh, God, white supremacist group went to the Marvel offices looking for Jack Kirby and Joe Simon back in the day, nineteen forty one ish. Fiorella Laguardia had to give them, give the have the police protect them because Jack Kirby didn't need protection. No. he could take care of himself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that guy was scrappy. Homeboy was the Yancey Street Gang. <laughs> Kirby crackles coming off his fist. Yeah. <laughs> It's just, and that's the thing that, that, and I said it before, but I will say it again now that we're, um, that these people have forgotten that comics, that fandom in general was created to bring people who felt like they didn't have anywhere else to go in. Uh, this week, if you ever watched Drunk History, this week's episode of Drunk History, one of the little things was Nichelle Nichols. And it talked about the history of Michelle Nichols and Martin Luther King coming to her and saying that he wanted her to stay because it gave yeah. a woman of color on television, not as a servant. That Star Trek fandom has always been about inclusivity. Comics have always been about inclusivity. Sometimes the companies have forgotten that, but I want to believe that for a long time the fans didn't you know kind of going back to the star trek and i'll keep this brief because you know i could go all day about this <laughs> but it's interesting you know you brought up michelle because that's what you know Whoopi goldberg who was one of the hottest actresses at the time wanted to go do this syndicated first run series you know because of that you know precedent and now you have some equal martin green who's fantastic who pretty much cites the same thing it's you know so it's nice that cycle is continuing and uh, uh, Star Trek, unfortunately, is another oh. sect with its own little... That's gotten ugly. I mean, keeping this kind of, you know, very brief. Yeah. You know, again, that's something that's always been, you know, sort of, you know, the benchmark for inclusivity and diversity, you know, and people just don't get it. And I, I know you, you just said, you know, people forget. I don't think they realize to begin with that. I, I think it's just, it, it is sort of a blind spot. And it's, that's kind of the problem that people are coming kind of in it at the middle and... Not, not knowing their history. Mm -hmm. And that's not an elitist statement, but that's just... And there's so many... 
resources these people who call themselves self-proclaimed, you know, uber fans who don't know that history. I would rather talk myself blue in the face to someone who's cosplaying a character that they don't know the comic of, but they just liked the design, and who might who would be interested in knowing more about that character than someone who knows their you know recent comics history backwards and forwards but can't bring themselves to you know include someone else in that conversation and that is not to say that there aren't cosplayers who absolutely do know their stuff there absolutely are but i know that's another one of the hot button topics for this kind of group that oh they're dressing up like that character and they don't even know what that character means Guess what? I'm sure the creator who created that costume is thrilled that somebody liked their costume enough to cre- to to cosplay that character. Not just playing gatekeeping, and that's just yeah. No, it's exactly that is exactly the what it is. Opposite of inclusivity, right there. Yes. I would recommend you know to anybody who's sort of on the fence is you know with this whole thing about you know I I don't know what to think. I hear this side and everything. If you've never been to a comic con before. Go to a, a nice populated Comic-Con, stand in a line, talk to people. Get to know people. You're going to see people of every kind of background, of every kind of race. You know, just getting out there and interacting with people, and I think that's really what, you know, that's how you com- combat this ultimately. There was a time I was really down on people in general, but I had a ticket to a con. And I went to that con, and I walked out of that con feeling better about people. Because Mm -hmm. I got into, I, a cis white guy, Mm -hmm. got into a half an hour long conversation with a queer person of color about Star Trek and Mm -hmm. Star Trek novels. And we just sat there and we talked about, you know, the different ones read and the way they've continued different things. And it was just like, we are two people who do not line up, quote-unquote, demographically in nearly any way. But we had this just great back and forth mm-hmm. about this thing, and we both walked away from it happy. That same language, again. Yeah. yeah it's... And, and, and if anything, wide, you know, widening the demographics and bringing those people in enriches, increases the different num- number of different kinds of stories that can be told. Mm-hmm. I'm, I love reading stories about people who are different than me. It's fascinating to see that point of view that I might never have had. And also seeing how someone who is so different from me, again, quote-unquote demographically, can have the same struggles or maybe not all the same, because again, there's some privilege being there if I assume that Kamala Khan has the same struggles as I do. That's definitely not. But that a character like that, it's like, I see them in high school, and guess what? They're kind of, she's kind of nerdy and quirky. And it's like, I don't know if I qualify as quirky. I definitely qualify as nerdy. I'd qualify you as quirky. I'll take it. But it's like there is a similarity of experience in some respects that we can all touch on and we can all see that, yes, they are different, but there is something that we all share. I, I think, you know, maybe we can even, you know, say this, you know, agree for the record that Kamala Khan 
or at least you know Miles Morales probably the most significant new Marvel character since Deadpool yeah. easily and, and you know I mean Miles I mean you know it's really you know it's a different version of a Spider-Man and everything Kamala really seemed fresh and just right off the gate just a classic Marvel origin like she belongs there I remember actually telling Mark Wade that at a panel you know I asked him what it was like being basically only the second writer to, to, to pick her up and what's that like to get somebody that fresh and you know uh, the one of the things that I'm loving in the most recent arc of Ms. Marvel is we met a new character who was a friend of Kamala's who guess what he's Jewish Kamala is a Muslim girl and he's a Jewish guy and they're friends that's a message that I kind of think we need. Because you know what? It can happen. It's like cats and dogs will not be living together. There will be no human <laughs> sacrifices. You know, the, the human experience, these things are allowed. They're possible. That we, that these type of people especially view things in stereotype. And that there's a, for, they, people forget that we're all human. We aren't just the sum of what categories we fit in. We are not a hashtag. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's truer words. <laughs> truer words. Uh, well, you know, I think the moral of the story here is that comics are for everyone and don't be a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Amen, brother. Um, yeah, man, I don't know. If we keep talking, we keep, we keep talking about this, I'm going to feel like I'm going to need a scalding hot shower. So uh, let's jarringly shift gears. Uh, you know, we had the Super Bowl this past Sunday, but then after the Super Bowl is when we got all the trailers for stuff. They kind of got meted out in the days after, which I thought was kind of weird. I feel like that's the first time that I've noticed that. I don't, I don't know. But uh, anyway, uh, so we got Solo, we got Deadpool 2, we got Jessica Jones uh, Season 2, and we got Venom. Um, any sort of initial observations about, about any of these, kind of right off the bat? Uh, obviously, Venom kind of had that Garfield minus Garfield vibe to it. <laughs> it looked like a, an action movie. It looked like Tom Hardy doing what Tom Hardy often does in movies. It looks like it's coming to Netflix next month. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i mean we'll start with venom and venom just seemed underwhelming i don't i mean i'm a person who doesn't like a trailer that gives away the whole movie so i'm kind of happy that we didn't see you know full shot of venom in the suit but it's not a spoiler that he turns into venom right <laughs> right it, but it's you know there for all of its for whatever faults one might find, and there are myriad in the Matthew Broderick, Jean Reno, Godzilla, they didn't give away Godzilla in the trailers. You had to actually go to see the abomination to see that abomination. I like that. I think you just defended a crime, though. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I don't have an issue with them making a Venom movie, period. I mean... I understand that they want to make this, you know, Spider-Man expanded universe or whatever. But well, if they don't, they lose the they lose the rights outright. So. But one thing, I mean, it, it, very little has been revealed about the movie. But the one thing I'm kind of concerned about, I mean, how much are they divorcing, you know, this origin from the Spider-Man mythos? I mean, Tom Holland really should be all over this, and there's been no, there's been a rumor that he may show up. I mean, there is no Venom without Spider-Man. And 
the thing is, Tom Holland is so young and Tom Hardy is so old, it become you have to do something different to connect them. Because young Spidey isn't working at the Daily Bugle. He can't give Venom that ultimate motivation for becoming a supervillain. Unemployment. We, we, we don't know anything about this Eddie Brock. It's not like there was a, a, a scene of him taking photos. And also, I, I hate to say this, uh, uh, as somebody who comes from a journalism background, uh, you know, photographers are people who get laid off from newspapers. So maybe saying this guy is a newspaper photographer is is a bit of a, a stretch in this day and age. I'm, I'd be happy, and again, it can't work because of their ages. But the way recent versions of Eddie Brock in other media and other universes have changed his origin, the ultimate version and Greg Weissman's criminally underrated Spectacular Spider-Man cartoon, tying the Brocks to the Parkers and making him this sort of childhood friend of Pete's, this really cracked mirror version of Pete, is interesting and it it gives him a stronger motivation than, wow, Peter Parker put me out of a job. I, I liked that, especially even more so in the cartoon because the Eddie Brock in Ultimate Spider-Man was a real creep, mm. just like Eddie Brock in the comics. Mm. The one in Spectacular Spider-Man was actually kind of a decent guy who Peter was inadvertently responsible for his fall from grace. It combined the two versions of the origin very nicely. Mm. But you can't do that when, you know, Peter Parker is 16 and Eddie Brock is 40. You know, kind of going back to what I said about being divorced from the Spider Mythos, I mean, it kind of gets go back, you know, about 15, 16 years to a movie called Catwoman. I, that Ooh. was completely divorced from the Batman mythos. But then saying that, and you have something like Legion, which has been brilliant, and that and completely yeah. divorced from the well, yeah. almost completely divorced from the yeah, X universe. Yeah. <laughs> There's Easter eggs there yeah. that make it sort of running on a parallel highway versus Catwoman. That was like, yeah, no. There's no Batman. There's no other Catwomans. At least in modern times, there's no Gotham. Yeah, it is completely removed itself. Um. Switching gears, Deadpool two trailer. Finally get you finally get to see Josh Brolin as Cable. Uh, definitely plays up the dichotomy between the two characters. It was a Deadpool trailer. It, it yeah. Was, <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. quirky. It, it quacked was, like a duck. <laughs> in, in the right ways. That's not a, a slam at it. I mean, sometimes if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I would have liked to see a little, maybe a little bit more Domino. Okay, I love yes. the look for Domino. Oh uh, yeah, no, absolutely. You know. I'm definitely. I do, do. We think that that was the the six pack. It you well, know that is getting dissected. Uh, Brett White, uh, who writes for Decider, used to write for CBR, uh, swears there's a guy in the back of that shot that looks like Shatterstar. If you zoom in, oh, I did not see that. Yeah, uh, Terry Crews is apparently in the movie, it's, and he uh, kind of looks bridge, right? Is he bridge? Okay, I the theory that I had heard was Hammer, the one the the quadriplegic. Although he was standing and walking, so I guess that would be... He's Terry Crews. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah, that is, yes, 100% accurate. If if they could get the entire cast of Brooklyn Nine-Nine to be different superheroes... I mean, Stephanie Beatriz is out there campaigning for... uh, America America Chavez, Chavez, yeah. Yeah. So, hey, 
All for that. Yeah. Can I say, if we could get more kick-ass Latina female superheroes, because not only is Stephanie Beatriz campaigning for that, but so is Gina Rodriguez of Jane the Virgin. Hmm. One of my favorite shows on television, if you've never watched it and you dig comics. Not that it has much I mean, it's on the same network as all the comic shows. (laughs) But it is a telenovela, and it has that same weird, intricate continuity of a comic book. And the same level of, wait, did that really just happen? And she's a wonderful actress, but it's like, can we have enough characters that all of these great actresses can find a can can all play different characters? I'd be happy for that. But oh, yeah, I, I just yeah, it 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 was fun and you know, action figures fighting each other. Yeah. Yay. I, I I said when I, I first saw the trailer, I'm like, okay, so we are getting a Deadpool as Sheriff Woody Funko Pop. Oh, very nice thing against uh, Justice League also about, you know, the CGI arm and not... Yeah. <laughs> it's not like we're removing a mustache, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, Solo. Okay. La- a- A.K.A. Lando's Commandos. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I, I will speak to this first as I am the biggest Star Wars fan here. I'm a guy who had read the entire Expanded Universe pre-reboot, and now I'm a little behind, but I'm still reading every Star Wars comic that comes out. Woo, Thrawn! Um, but I there's some really cool stuff, but I think Dan said this, that the, the Donald Glover, in what little we see of him, completely steals that trailer. I don't even think he said anything. I think he just stood there in his outfit, and we were all like... Yes, we will bow before you. Yes, I mean, I will say I have not seen my wife this excited for a sci-fi superhero movie ever, mostly because of her giant crush on Donald Glover. <laughs> and I'm okay with that because it means I can get her to come with me to see the movie. I think it's great to, like, you know, no matter how divisive this movie may be, and I've got a feeling I, 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 but he's going to be fantastic. Oh, he's, I mean, yeah. he's, he's going to own the show right there. Right. I, I There is the part of me that will... There is the fanboy in me that does, like, why do they need to give Woody Harrelson's character a different name than Gareth Shrike, the character, which is basically this is the old the EU name of Han Solo's mentor. That is a deep cut, and I just learned something. <laughs> that, that was the name of the character, and it's like, you're not hurting anybody by using those names. It's Grand Admiral Thrawn and his assassin sidekick Rook who appeared in this season of Rebels 2 you can use these characters and not break the new continuity I mean I'm not gonna not see the movie I'm not one of those guys but it's just kind of like there seems to be this thought that we need they need to be super super judicious on what elements of the EU they use and which ones they don't when if it's just names and stuff that you know will be a nice little nod for the fans that know that stuff and might make some of the ones who won't shut up about it shut up about it a little <laughs> what do you guys think of the fact that there's been absolutely zero marketing onslaught about this and it's only out in four months i you know I, I think now. part of it a lot of it stems from the switch and directors i mean that was less than a year ago and frankly i'm still nervous about the idea of of ron howard over over lord miller i was very excited for a lord miller star wars he's movie. perfectly fine i mean he's, he's a workman director you know i don't think he's made any really bad movies mm, not, not, not somebody who's known very much for a style but just for being you know an efficient you know good you know mainstream director 
Um, then again, we also had that with uh, Ant Man. You know, we went from yeah. Edgar Wright to Peyton Reed. Yeah. Yeah. It 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 seemed neat. It seemed to show a lot of what I want to see from Han Solo. I want to see him, you know, driving speeders and driving ships mm -hmm. and being in action and being in, you know, the middle of a caper. And being we, cocky. We, we want to see the Kessel yeah. Run. Yes. <laughs> I, I want to see the Kessel Run. Mm -hmm. I'm, again, a little disappointed, and this is less of a deep cut, that they introduced the character in the comics... Uh, Sana Saros slash Sana Solo. She was she and Han got married as part of a, a grift that didn't mm -hmm. work out, and I was expecting they were going to use that character, and it doesn't look like they are. And those books are canon, apparently. They yeah. are. Everything released since a, all the Marvel comics yeah. and all the novels after the novel called New Dawn, which was the the novel tie into Rebels and all of Rebels. Are canon, so it struck me as okay. You're gonna if you're gonna treat you know to quote the unfortunately less and less seeming it's all connected myths oh, yeah. that Marvel has been using for their cinematic universe for Star Wars, then make it all connected. I was listening to a podcast and they the scene that was talking about all of the different Star Wars media and how it's tied together, and the seams are starting to show in contradictions between the books and the comics and different things and that's the cost of doing business i yeah. accept that but if you go out of your way to introduce your first big new character in the comics who's going to be important and then you have a movie where that character would logically fit and again all you have to do is use that character then you're you should be good I don't honestly don't want to believe that in the back of my head there's a little thing that I'm worried that Sana is a dark-skinned queer character in the comics, and I'm a part of me might be a little worried that there are people in the film end of things that are a little concerned they're not quite ready for Star Wars to have a character that quote unquote checks that many boxes. Mm. I, I don't want to believe that, mm -hmm. but there's a little part of me that kind of wonders because Star Wars fandom has had some of that. Not as bad as Star Trek, not as bad as comics, but there is. Well, if you look at the, if you look at the arguments about the Last Jedi online, well, apparently there's a you know they actually bootlegged it and made a cut that oh. removed any scene that involved you know a female oh you, you know presence of power. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I guess that's I'm, the whole movie. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I guess I'm more that there's been less of the problems with queer characters than fe female characters are a big problem. So we're not bringing Doctor Afra to the. Uh... If only I freaking love Afra. Yes. Because that that was how you, Sana and Afra. There was a an indication when they met that they had had that's a, thing. a previous romantic nice encounter, and so it's like, oh. I mean, Afra is seriously just a great, great character. And I would love to see Af a young Afra, not that much younger, on Rebels. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's... I mean, the, the stuff with Afra takes place within a year after New Hope. Mm -hmm. So Rebels is getting to the point where by the end of that series, it's going to be right on top of Rogue One. So mm -hmm. Afra could easily pop up there. 
I, I would love to see Afra in the movie. I just I think she's a different character than we usually get in Star Wars. Although we got something closer to her in DJ from Last Jedi, a character who is truly amoral, mm-hmm. not necessarily evil. Not necessarily that Star Wars tends to really be dichotomous. There isn't a middle ground in characters in Star Wars. Even your you know roguish characters tend to come around and ha- turn out to have hearts of gold. Han, Lando. Uh, a true mercenary. For right, yeah. yes. Yeah. Afra and DJ are both totally in it for themselves. Mm-hmm. The Acker and Blacker DJ one-shot that came out a couple weeks ago was mm-hmm. a great example of that. There were a couple of times in that book where you think he's like, oh, oh, wait, no. And I was a little like, oh. He's like, you know, I only do it, you know, I only take from those who deserve it. Next uh, narration bubble, of course, everybody deserves it. It's like, okay, there we go. That's, I, I did not want a, you know, morally, I, I wanted pure mor- moral relativism from this character. And they gave it to me. Et voila. Uh, finally, uh, Jessica Jones, season two. Looks good. Kind of made me realize I'm probably not going to finish Punisher. Like, I, I, I'm stuck on episode four from, like, weeks ago, and I just haven't picked it up. There was an article on, I think it was CBR this week. It might have been somewhere else about the question of whether Jessica Jones can save the Marvel Netflix universe. Is it in danger? Well, more in creatively. Okay. After the failure of Iron Fist. Well, Iron Fist did suck it. The relative failure of Defenders. I like Defenders. I like Defenders, but the fact that it was not as well received as the earlier series. It was a non-event. Right. It happened. And the fact that Punisher was dogged less by quality issues, although there were people, and it, you know, but mm-hmm. more by its release and the questions of... Timing was bad. Yeah, the timing yeah. was bad and questions of gun control and mm-hmm. gun debates in the country. Yep, by the way, I have to say, but we are getting a Death Wish movie, which takes the Punisher, which is the Punisher even further and doesn't have the more interesting stuff that this Punisher series did about Mm -hmm. PTSD and about soldiers coming home, which is the thing that made this series really interesting to me. That was pushed back. Is that still getting a theatrical release? Oh, yeah. I've seen TV commercials. There's a case for something to get released to Netflix. That's it right there. Yeah. Yeah. Who demanded that? I think they spent too much money on it. They have to try a theatrical release because you got, you you spent, however much you spent on Bruce Willis is more than can justify Netflix. Well, I want to say, Eli Roth directed it, I want to say. I don't know. Sounds about, yeah, he's, yeah. Um, Sounds like something Eli Roth would direct. But that's, there's a, because, I mean, it was, there's, I can't remember what podcast it was, but someone commenting on, they were talking about Vigilante in Arrow. And coming on him as the white male power gun-toting fantasy and say that the Punisher is the next level up from that, which is absolutely true. But they, or at least on the same level. And that the, the thing that I feel the Netflix series did is that making Frank somewhat haunted, he's not conflicted, but you got a little psychology versus I'm just going to walk into, you know, into a room with guns and just mow down everything in front of me doesn't necessarily invalidate it does not invalidate those arguments because they are valid arguments but it gives something to work with 
in the way you think about it. Yeah. Versus, it's, not, it's not Warzone where it's just gleefully violent. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Versus Death Wish, which is starts out with fridging and then moves on to a massacre. And there's no, you know, nothing to the character other than I feel like you hurt the women in my life, let me go and kill everything in front of me. And those women were really just an excuse for me to cut loose. It's right-wing, exploitative, vigilante porn. Yes. That's yes. All of the Death Wish films were basically, and they just kept ramping it up more and more. Yep. And, and they, it came out that sort of at the ter- tail end of the whole Dirty Harry era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's there's an interesting argument to be made about where the line exists between that level of that and Batman and whether or not Batman is that exact same fantasy. Minus guns. Minus guns and minus death. And I think there's always something to be said that the difference that I always find, and we'll get back to Jessica Jones in a second, but I need to We don't this. have to. It's fine. Oh, no, to quote Judge Dredd and that, that memorable crossover, you know, and I smell vigilante. Yeah, that <laughs> the difference is, and this is, there are two Batmen, and one of them is pretty much right on the line with that. And that's the Batman who's going out there every night to just beat up Joe Chill over and over and over again. Whether it's really Joe Chill or not. The other Batman, the Batman who does not, is the Batman who goes out there every night to protect the little boy who could become him from becoming him. That is a different character that does not necessarily fall into the same trap. Kind of reminds me of that, you know, it's kind of a divisive story, but the uh, Identity Crisis, where you have the one panel where he just says, not again. Yes. That's, for me, it, for me it's, there's an episode of Batman the Animated Series, Harley's Holiday, mm-hmm. where Harley gets out of Arkham, she, she's released, and there's just a whole series of misadventures happen that wind up with her back in Arkham, because she forgot to have the security tag removed from a dress that she bought, and it set off the alarms. And when she gets brought back to Arkham, Batman's waiting there, and he gives her the dress. And she's surprised, and he just looks at her and said, I had a bad day once, too. That Batman, the Batman who is really doesn't want to see anyone have that kind of day again, is a hero versus the Batman who's like beating the hell out of everybody because he's still eight years old in that alley. And then there's all those evil Batman from the dark multiverse. Oh, yes, there's those guys. <laughs> They're all pretty much close to the second one. There's the next level one. And the ones wearing hockey pads. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But back to Jessica Jones. Um, no, I, I dug it. I dug... Uh, more Trish. I'm looking forward to more Trish. After. It looks like she's going to become kind of, I mean, maybe not full Hellcat, but a lot closer. Yeah, especially, uh, that's a character that I came to absolutely love from uh, yeah. Kate Leth's Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. And even though this is not Patsy, this is Trish, I love that character now, and I want to see more of it. Looks like we're going to get more Killgrave. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's all in Jessica's... Is she so haunted? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like they're really going to get back into her origin, so I would imagine there's going to be some flashbacks of their history together, kind mm-hmm. of like what they did in the original Alias book. Where... Yeah. Yeah. I- I'd be okay with that. I, I mean, I don't, want, I don't want Kilgrave to come back from the dead. No, I don't think they would. Yeah, I don't know. But I think that we... Although there is that line that in the trailer, that the, you know, 
we brought you back from the dead, the powers were just a side effect or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. So you could possibly bring Kilgrave back if they're using that, but I don't think so. I think it's either, as you say, going to be flashbacks mm-hmm. or it's going to be, you know, the ghost of, quote-unquote, ghost of Kilgrave talking mm-hmm. to her in her weak moments. Either way, he sarcastically slow-clapped. Yes. Yes, he did. <laughs> David Tennant can slow-clap like nobody's business. Um... So uh, to wrap up, let's do a little book club here. Uh, what's uh, one or two books that you guys picked up this week that you would recommend to the rest of us? Uh, I'll go first. Sure. Um, for me, I cannot recommend enough Young Monsters in Love one-shot from DC. It's an anthology. I'm a sucker for anthologies, both in comics and in prose, because, yeah, you're probably going to get one or two stories that you don't like, but... For me, on the whole, and granted, I'm an easy audience for this kind of thing because I like a lot of stuff. You're going to get one or two stories that just are great. The The big one here, and I think it's the one that's been talking about the most, is a uh, Monsieur Mala and the Brain story. Any little love story between a beret-wearing militant French ape and a disembodied brain, thumbs up from me. There's a lot of great creators in this book, a lot of great art. And it's a really strong anthology. Um, the other thing is a twofer. It's a two, uh, two books came out this week by Kelly Thompson, uh, recently announced Marvel exclusive. Um, one of them is the second issue of her Rogue and Gambit miniseries, which is fun. It's got some great character beats. And this issue especially... Flashbacks, never-before-seen scenes set around the Muir Island saga, the last story before the big X-Men reboot of the 90s that was recently uh, profiled on the great podcast Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. After having listened to that, seeing these scenes was really cool, especially when Rogue comments about how she seems to be the only one whose costume was shredded and in such strategic places. Do they try to... Do they... Do, um, I think it's Perry Perez who draws that series. Does he try to like mimic the Jim Lee art or the style at the time? Actually, I think at that point it was like a jam session. It was like a whole mess of artists. Yeah, but... no, he just kind of runs with his own okay. style. But I mean, there's, I really like the way Thompson handles those two characters and their relationship and does not... There's a little bit of a Claremontian accentism, but it's more... <laughs> It feels like an homage to Claremontian accents versus trying to do the Claremontian accents. Uh, And also from uh, Thompson this week was the third issue of IDW's Ghostbusters Answer the Call. This is the follow-up to to Ghostbusters 101 from the general Ghostbusters creative team of of Shoning and... Dunham? Durham? I can't. I'm sorry to the artist on the regular Ghostbusters book. I love your. No, that's the writer. Shoning is the artist. I'm. Yeah. But I apologize to the Ghostbusters creative team. But <laughs> that was a cross dimensional crossover between the classic Ghostbusters and the uh, all female team. This is the miniseries following the all female team. And Thompson does a great job with all these characters' voices. She builds a creepy story that is still funny. And boy, she gets uh, Jillian Holtzman's voice, uh, Kate McKinnon's character's voice, spot on. That was a character who I we've said we've, when we've talked in the past that that should have been a breakout pop culture phenomenon character that was hurt by the all the 
unpleasantness around that movie, going back to Toxic Fandom. But she gets that character so right, and it's just... I would read... I, I want her... I want Thompson to write a series of Gillian Holtzman being crazy mad scientist off somewhere. I would read that book. With Sigourney Weaver as her mother? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, how about you? Okay, I've got a pair of oddities here. Um, more recent uh, releases than something that came out this week. Um, my first one from uh, Dark Horse, something uh, completely unexpected called Vinegar Deep, um, from, uh, written by uh, Damon Gentry with art by uh, Troy Nixie. Now you're going to have to visualize me with, you know, very wide-eyed and just waving my arms, trying to describe this book, which, I mean, absolutely genre-bending. I mean, imagine Eisner riffing on Alienation, dipped in Lovecraft, sprinkled with a mix of Richard Corbin, Sam Keith, and Renan Stimpy. You know, it, it, it's like a very Noir-style, gross-out, buddy cop. It, it, absolutely absurd, gorgeous, and grungy. Um... Basically, for fans of anything that I just listed there, definitely recommended. I mean, basically, it's this amorphous blob-type creature that just, you know, comes out of nowhere that, uh, you know, stops a crime and becomes sort of, you know, the hero of the city. Kind of like the Toxic Avenger. And <laughs> somehow, uh, you know, the police commissioner sees fit to put it on the, you know, the payroll. And, you know, they team it up with, you know, kind of the washed-up cop and... You know, of course, they're going to have to, you know, get to know each other and just, just a wild book. Um, kind of on the same token, um, from uh, Black Mask, uh, The Great Space Riders uh, just uh, concluded its uh, second volume, Brutality, uh, A Galaxy of Brutality, um, written by uh, Fabian Rangel with uh, art by the great Alex Arie. I've always said that, you know, as much as I love Star Wars, you know, the things that came in the wake of Star Wars, you have like the Roger Corman ripoffs. You know, ice pirates. I mean, this really fits in perfectly with that. I mean, imagine you know, tequila-soaked space opera. You know, with a very you know, lowbrow rock and roll psychedelic vibe. You know, it's crass, it's loud, it's violent, it's so oversaturated. It's really a piece of work. It feels it's, like it'd be right at home in like heavy metal. Absolutely, mm. and not you know, like prime heavy metal. You know, mm. in the early to mid '80s. So that crazy. Some of the, the dark epic stuff that Marvel did back, yes, back when well, Epic Illustrated, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, Alex Arit, I mean, it's one of those artists. I mean, really, this guy should be doing like Melvin's, you know, <laughs> posters, you know, like venue posters and things like that. That's mm -hmm. that art style, which I just cannot get enough of. And both books very heavily recommended. And if you want something a little bit left field and you know, odd, yeah, yeah. I'm going to check them out. So uh, for my two, uh, first of all, I'm going to push a book that's coming out actually this coming Wednesday, uh, Valentine's Day, which is uh, Bingo Love by T. Franklin and uh, Jen St. Ange. Uh, I actually reviewed it on uh, the website if you go to uh, wmqcomics.com. Uh, it's about these uh, two black women uh, who meet as teenagers in the 1960s in New Jersey and fall in love. And it kind of, you know, they're separated by their families and it traces their story over decades. They reconnect. Uh, roughly 2015 and and they both end up uh you know leaving their husbands for each other and the family drama and also just about sort of like being older and coming into your sexuality it it was it was beautiful and uh you know i i said this online but it really like the end of the book gave me the, the that like first 20 minutes of up feeling so uh i definitely recommend that uh for my second recommendation 
Uh, I'm going with the Snagglepuss Chronicles from DC, which has been fantastic. Um, they are doing amazing things with their cartoon properties. Uh, you know, between the Flintstones and the the Batman Elmer Fudd one shot from last year. Um, you know, this is taking you know, these, these classic sort of second-tier Hanna-Barbera char- characters, you know, Snagglepuss, Huckleberry Hound, Augie Doggy, uh, Peter Potamus, and it's set in the 1950s against the the McCarthy hearings, uh, and Snagglepuss is like a gay Southern Gothic playwright in, in New York. And Tennessee Williams. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's just, it's fascinating stuff. Um, this is the second issue that just came out, so you've probably already seen the buzz for it. Uh, so what I really want to talk about is the backup strip in the second issue. Uh, this burst of ridiculousness called Sasquatch Detective <laughs> by Brandy Stillwell and Gustavo Vasquez. Uh, it's like, remember sort of the random bits, like the second and third acts of Animaniacs? You know, it's just, oh, here's Pinky singing a song about cheese. You know, uh, Slappy Squirrel trying to get a get a nut open set to, you know, opera or whatever. This is that. It's just six pages of random slapstick where this nine-foot-tall Sasquatch, who is a detective in the Los Angeles Police Department, and her partner, who looks like, you know, everybody you've ever seen on Law & Order, kind of go over like a year's worth of cases, and it's like, Oh, remember when I went undercover as a as a gymnast to arrest a you know drug cartel leader? Remember that time I played a dead body on SVU and we busted that drug ring running out of craft services? And it's just aside after aside after aside, and it's, I, yeah, <laughs> it it was ridiculous, and I wanted more of it. And uh, I actually interviewed uh, Brandy Stillwell, uh, the creator, uh, basically because I immediately read that and I was like, well, I need to know everything about this. <laughs> So that's what I'm pushing. And then honorable mention, because uh, I think we can all talk about this, X-Men Red number one. Uh, I did not, you know, I wasn't hot on the idea of a fourth X-Men team book after Gold, Blue, and Astonishing. Um, you know, that's not a slight against the creative team. Tom Taylor's done great with Laura Kinney. And Mahmoud Azrar does good X-Men, and he's done good X-Men before. But uh, in reading the issue, it has a mission statement. Uh, this is the book most closely aligned to handling the mutant metaphor. And, and sort of trying to bring respectability to mutants, and uh, it, it works. Yeah, I think it's an interesting take. It feels like Prime X-Men, and it's gorgeous. You know, I, I, the talk of, you know, starting this new mutant nation, I mean, is she looking to start basically like a new Genosha? I mean, what, what is her It sounds like she's just looking for the, the sort of the sponsorship of a a mutant-led nation, or at least sort of the the yeah, like the recognition of one, which is why she needed the backing of Namor, and, and why she goes that. to Wakanda, and, and why they're and I think uh, not yet, but there's going to be a Wakanda mutant on the team. Mm. So it's sort of building that that international coalition. But you know, people loved Namor. As an X-Man, you know, they they, they love their, their their Prince of Absalantis. So. You know, I, I didn't love Namor at first as an X-Men. I thought it was just, okay, this is just kind of a stunt, you know, casting. Up until there was a point where Cyclops had this strategy that really gave him, you know, I want you to go and tell him that he's the strongest of all the X-Men and we not we cannot survive without him. And of course they go and tell him that, well, of course he's right. And really comes to the game right there. I thought that was brilliant. And it's interesting that this is... 
to see the idea of establishing a mutant nation not done by a villain or by an X-Man who is in the midst of a nervous breakdown is an, a different take than we've ever seen. Because mutant nations have either been Genosha under Magneto. Mm -hmm. uh, Utopia. Utopia. Providence. Provi oh, pro okay, Providence was a little safer, but... Cable's always, I think, right on the edge of... Well, it got blown up. It did. And uh, Mystique running Madripoor for a while during oh, Bendis' right. run. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. That, you know, Cyclops, every time he did it, he was... That was Cyclops on the edge. It was Cyclops was never doing that when he was Xavier's dream Cyclops. This was always Scott with Emma whispering in his ear. Yeah. So it's interesting to see a character who is out and out heroic mm -hmm. saying that it's time for this it's just great that you know not only have they brought Jean back admirably but they've given her a purpose yeah and and i think that you know that honors what they that honors the whole idea of bringing her back in the first place but also you know, it doesn't make phoenix resurrection as you know a waste mm -hmm. um well, I think that covers everything. Uh, I want to thank my co-hosts, Matt and Rob. Uh, where can people find you online if you, in fact, wish to be found? <laughs> I'm pretty much on digital detox these days. I do have a Twitter, uh, Lynch by Lynch. Um, pop in every now and then. But generally, a lot of the things that we discussed, you know, kind of the reason I really lay low, you know. I'm kind of with Rob on this one. Um, you can't, I do still have a Twitter, uh, Matt Laz 1013 I don't check it very often. Uh, I do do still have blog floating around, which is the Matt Signal. Uh, I updated. I've been updating it very infrequently, just because of a lot of this. But now that the writing bug has bitten me again, you might get. You might go over there and see me. You know, having a long rambling discussion about Batman because shock of shocks, that's my bad. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh... Again, internet, be nicer so my friends come back. Uh, but uh, you can find me uh, at Daniel P. Grote on Twitter. But more importantly, you can find more great comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views at uh, wmqcomics.com and uh, the Facebook and Twitter pages of the same name. Uh, we'll see you guys next time, whenever that happens to be.